Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with Ted Conover, author of Cheap Land, Colorado, Off-Gridders at America's Edge, just published in November of 22 by Knopf. Ted Conover is a professor at and the former director of New York University's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Harper's, and National Geographic. In 2000, he won the National Book Critics Circle Award for New Jack, Guarding Sing Sing, which was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Welcome, Ted. Thanks a lot, Dan. So let's talk about where in Colorado this book takes place, and then we'll actually get into the reasons for your trip out there and what you found, because I imagine that, like many people, the setting of the book is not what they might anticipate when they see a, you know, a book with Colorado in the title. Fair enough. It is, uh, it's on the prairie in Colorado. The mountains are visible from there, but it's not a mountain place except around the edges. The, uh, the San Luis Valley, which is my location for this book, is in south central Colorado. And if you drove without stopping from Denver, you might get there in four hours, though it might take you a little longer. Um, the valley is the size of New Jersey, and it extends all the way into New Mexico. The southern end of it is Taos, but most of it is in Colorado, and most of it is is this prairie, uh, private land that uh, you might think is some sort of federal land because so much beautiful space in Colorado belongs to the government, but it it's private, most of it, and that is kind of why... Uh, there are so many uh, little lots there that uh, turns out people are able to live on. Okay. So let's turn to like the actual book and like what you did and, and who the people you met. So in some ways I was your ideal reader because um, this was not the book I thought I would be reading. I, I was wonderfully sucker punched by this book. I thought it was going to be that you were going to be this modern day Thoreau who goes out to the West. He goes out to the flats, you know, he finds his own way and kind of reports back to the rest of us and, and tells us how to live our lives. And there's a little bit of that in the book, but your book is really filled with these these engaging, rough stories about people in all kinds of trouble. And, and many of them are not there for the beauty of the flat to the beauty of the natural world, right? You say, here's a quote from your book, the San Luis Valley with its extra cheap land was a sort of mecca for these off-gridders. So what kind of off-gridders are we talking about here? Like what kind of people did you find move out to the San Luis Valley? So that's a good question because there's a whole spectrum of off-gridders, you know, at the more expensive end, there's people who can afford earth ships, which I'm sure some of your listeners will know about. Uh, These are sort of high tech green constructions that incorporate, you know, tires and bottles and have advanced systems for recycling uh, water. But this is way at the bottom end of 
the scale in terms of expense, the people who are drawn to the valley usually have very little money. Um, this is some of the cheapest land you can get in the United States. And I guess there's a push and a pull involved. Some uh, are looking for a, you know, a, a new start. Um, actually, a lot, I'd say, are looking for a new start. But for a hundred or a thousand different reasons, it might be the two women who left their husbands in Oklahoma to start a new life with each other and uh, were some of the first people I met out there. Or the person who introduced me to them was named Matt Little. And Matt came from West Virginia and some tours in the military in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, uh, his he'd lost his wife. His house had burned down. And he thought, gosh... If I could start anywhere, I would want to start, I think, in Colorado. And and that brought him. Uh, you, you, you find people who you think might have trouble fitting in in the mainstream world. And, and you find people, yeah, who feel like exiles in a lot of ways, who just, uh, for various reasons, have sort of opted out of the mainstream, or maybe they've been pushed. Yeah. So there is a little bit of that John Denver, the lyrics to Rocky Mountain High in there, like getting away from the, you know, the rest of the world. And if I could start over anywhere, it would be in Colorado. There, there's definitely an optimism to it. And it is undeniably beautiful, even if it's not right next to the mountains. It's, uh, you know, the, the prairie to my eye is incredibly beautiful. And the skies there are captivating and dramatic there's always something going on the weather you know it's just interesting all the time but it's an un uh unpleasant place to live when it gets cold uh or when it's windy which is much of the year um it's a rough place to be and lots of people i lived with who were my age were often thinking, gosh, I wish I could go somewhere warmer in the winter. And, uh, you know, some figure out a way to go to Arizona or New Mexico or Mexico itself sometimes. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, a wide variety of people who share, I'd say, a certain disaffection with mainstream life. Yeah, okay. Now, you mentioned Matt Little, who comes up in the book a lot before, and the title comes from a phrase that Matt Little Googled. He Googled the phrase Cheapland Colorado. And it's funny, I looked on Zillow this morning and I was like, yeah, like there's plenty of lots for, I'm not about to do this. The book's already been written and, and you've, 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 you've cornered this market. So, um, you know, there are plenty of lots available though for five or $6,000. I mean, I'm just going through them and, I, and it was funny. I'm like, oh yeah, that's Alamosa, like all the places mentioned in the book, right? But I want to ask you about the subtitle. The subtitle is Off Gridders at America's Edge. Now, you talk about this edge in the book, and what's fascinating is that you don't mean, obviously, the geographic edge like the coast. Like, What do you mean by the edge? The edge of what? I guess I, I'm thinking about marginal, the margins, like the margins of the page of a book are the place where there's no words. They're outside of the main action or even outside of our consideration, right? These are people who are uh, often probably not counted on the census. They're not thought of um, by many politicians. Um, 
And often that is how they want it. They, uh, in many cases, have sort of checked out of society in some way. Um, a number of them, I'd say you could call hermit, call them hermits. Uh, they're just not interested in interaction very often. But there are exceptions to that. There are people who, uh, though they might live two miles from their next neighbor, they're sending messages on their, uh, you know, on the one bar of cellular signal they have on their cell phone. They're messaging their neighbors. They're talking about the mountain lion or the sunset or the, the uh, you know, the problem with the road or the bridge. There's just... Uh, but yeah, you definitely feel you are out of the mainstream there. And part of that is encountering people with, you know, what struck me as off the wall ideas about how soon society will be coming to an end or, uh, the treachery of, uh, politicians, especially, uh, those, uh, in blue states or in, uh, you know, people in blue states generally, I think there's a real suspicion of journalists and of professors, uh, which obviously presented a particular challenge to me. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about this. Um, so you, you're known, you're established as, as, as somebody that practices what's called immersion journalism. And you, you even have a book called by that name about immersion journalism. So in this book, in Cheapland, Colorado, you, you talk about your desire to become a landowner here. And here's a quote by you from the book. You say, I could interview 100 landowners, but it seemed to me I'd understand them more if I had skin in the game. So can you talk? Because more than once when I was reading, you know, I, I put the book down on my lap for a second. I say, I wonder what it was like when he, at what moment this guy said, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to go out there and I'm actually going to buy one of these things and do, because it struck me as, yes, this could be a, a great long Atlantic piece or a great long piece for the New Yorker. But I, when I, I laughed when I read that out loud, you're like, you know what? I, I, I should have some skin in the game. So can you talk about that moment and, 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 and how you ended up off the grid? So I went to learn about the people who live out there and try to figure out who they are and why they made that choice. And my interest was piqued by just seeing some similar settlements in a similar part of Colorado called South Park, which is the sort of namesake of the cartoon series that, you know, has all these um, uh, colorful and misfit people in it. Um, there's a real South Park and huge parts of it are empty except for a giant grid of dirt roads that was created in the seventies by real estate speculators and, and a handful of remote little homesteads, you know, um, half of them are trailers that you're not sure could actually move again. And, uh, there's wooden lean tos, there's sheds, there's tough sheds. There's people sometimes living in their vehicles. There's a whole, radio segment I heard while I was researching my book about a man who lives in the ground in South Park. Uh, while he's while he's building his house, he's sort of dug a hole and put a roof over it. And so these are really basic structures. And I got interested 
the more I saw of them, the more I was surprised because I grew up in Colorado and this was not the Colorado I knew. I did, you know, this, I, I write that it reminded me of Appalachia without the trees. And I know lots of Appalachia is very beautiful and, and not poverty stricken, but I'm talking about the rough, you know, the people off grid in, in very poor places. And uh, so I got interested to know who they are, but also to, and this is something I find myself doing. I want to know in a more personal way, what it's like to be there. And partly this is maybe a background in anthropology, which I studied as an undergrad, but this idea that if you're participating in people's lives, you're going to know more than if you're just interviewing, right? Like if you are sharing those conditions, if you share food or, you know, whatever it is, if you, you'll start connecting with them in a different way. And I've, I've stuck with this approach just because a, I learned so much when you, when you have your own land and you're trying to figure out how to stay warm and you're worried, like the very first night, you might remember this. I could not open. I, I, I ran out of fuel. My, I almost froze to death. I, I had a big sleeping bag that, thank goodness, kept me warm. But in the morning, everything was frozen, including my toothbrush, which I tried to use. And then I tried to open the door to get outside. And the frost inside had frozen the door shut. And... um this isn't something I would know. The panic and the sort of self-doubt, like, you know, here I'm supposedly an educated person, but I'm clearly way out of my depth. Like, I don't really know how to manage this. And so my approach is make this clear to the people I want to get to know. They know what I want to know. How do you stay warm? How do you how do you live out here? And I take that approach. I make them my teachers to the degree I can. Um, I'm upfront that I am from New York. I live there now. And no, I, I did not vote for uh, Donald Trump because he does not uh, seem to think much of journalists like me. Um, uh, but there's lots to talk about, you know, including politics, but also not politics. And I came with the idea that I could have a conversation even with people I might disagree with in certain ways. And so, yeah, the idea of immersion is that I will stay long enough and take part in that kind of life long enough that I'll have a deeper understanding. And I'll never know 100%, right? Because I can leave. I, I can go home. If I freeze my toes, I can drive into town and use a credit card to get a hotel room. So I will never understand a lot of important things about desperation or addiction or loneliness that my neighbors know very well. But I'll get closer to it than if I had never tried. Yeah, that's great. Somebody, when I was reading, asked me, someone said, what's it like? And I go, it's like reading Orwell. I thought it was like the road to Wigan Pier or down oh, wow. in Paris of London. So well, that, that's a great compliment. He's one of my <laughs> heroes. Yeah, um, certainly. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, Mr. Immersion himself, right? So, so let's talk about some of the people you met when you were out there. Um, let's talk about the family that you live next to and became close to the Grubers. Like, so, so tell our listeners, you know, who are the Grubers and and what was your living space like? You mentioned how um that great scene where you where you can't use a toothbrush, you almost freeze to death. There's also the scene that made me laugh is um when you go out there and you think, is this going to flip over? Is the wind about to flip this thing over? Like, how do we, so, but the Grubers kind of helped you out a lot and they kind of showed taught you the ropes, right? Well, exactly. Before I ever bought my own place, I thought, I just want to rent. And I, I thought, somebody's got a room and needs a tenant. And come to find that that's almost never the case. Um, most people live in a small dwelling and they don't really want a tenant. And, um, and I was told by people at La Puente, the group I volunteered with, uh, who do a rural outreach program that I started working for in order to get out there, I was told, you know, you might not really want to live uh, with everybody you meet out there. And um, uh, But when I said, well, do you have any ideas for somebody who might rent me a space for a trailer if I bought my own trailer, right? Could I perhaps move it onto somebody's land for a while? And that's how I met the Grubers. It's a mom and dad from Wyoming. They have five daughters. The youngest had just been born when I got there. The oldest was, I think, 12. She's now 17, uh, about to turn 18. And, um, And Matt Little took me out to meet them, and they seemed like nice people. Um, I think I was, I must've looked to them like a man from the moon, like to, because I do not, I did not fit in, especially at the beginning. Uh, but I figure, you know, I, I'm just going to try to be myself. I'm going to be friendly. I'm going to see if I can help them because that's the other thing. There's a lot of need, uh, And La Puente, this social service group based in Alamosa, Colorado, started out running a homeless shelter. Uh, They were co-founded by a nun and some community activists. And and they discovered that as people were trying to live out on the flats, on the prairie, off-grid, they would get uh, super cold this time of year and become homeless and end up in the shelter. And they wanted to stop that. So part of the outreach is offering people firewood, uh, coats, boxes of food from the food bank. Do you need a prescription picked up? Is there anything else I can do? And and so I try to, you know, help the Grubers by bringing them some of that stuff. And, uh, and they were initially super self-conscious about their living conditions, which are, uh, you know, not exactly tidy because it's hard if you're living out in this windblown dusty place and you have dogs coming in and out and you have all these kids it's hard to keep tight and i said you know i understand domestic uh chaos uh from raising my own kids and i seriously i am not gonna judge you and so little by little i would get invited over and um little by little we got to know each other pretty well and um so the grubers were my base for the first like two two and a half years and then I bought my own land and moved my trailer onto that. 
Yeah, that's it's funny because you talk about I'll jump ahead a little bit. You talk about La Puente, right? This rural outreach and the first scene of the book is you with Matt Little, I believe, going out and and uh, I love how you give you get to give the reader the sense that like you knock on the door or you honk the horn first, yeah, and then you just wait. This isn't so even the even the rural outreach program is not like you know Ned Flanders from The Simpsons knocking on your door like hi ho neighbor like it's yeah. a, it's a whole different vibe. Oh, it's a whole different vibe. And you've <laughs> got to be really cautious and respectful when you approach somebody's homestead because right. some of these folks are a little paranoid. Yeah. Some of them are worried about theft um, because they may have some marijuana plants growing. And marijuana, uh, you know, when a plant is big, that could be worth $1,000. Yeah. And, um, and people have dogs and uh, as Matt Little pointed out to me, if I see an American flag, that's a good sign that there's probably a firearm inside. Mm -hmm. And he said, but even if you don't see that, you don't want to drive right up to the door. You want to stop on the road and you want to beep the horn and hope you'll get a reaction. And then you might get out of the car and just show them, you know, show them you're just a guy. You're not a big guy you're not a county inspector of some kind and you have to wear the right colored shirt yeah, so no, no blue shirts exactly it had to be maroon or green and um he just had all this great advice and uh and be patient and uh so that was just super helpful to me and yeah. You know, you don't want to presume this friendliness, hold out your hand, expect them to shake it. You just, you want to keep your distance and get to know somebody slowly. Yeah. He was kind of like, you were Dante and he was Virgil, like guiding you through this, <laughs> through this world. So, something to that. Which is cool because then you guide the reader. So I was kind of like third. I was like, you know, in the back, you two guys were in the front seat of the car and I was in the back seat. So we <laughs> talked about the groupers. Let's talk about another person I thought was representative of the men, because you meet so many people in this book, right? But um, I found Paul really interesting because he's in the beginning and then he goes away for all and he comes back on like you introduce him as charming and funny and i remember laughing when i read it and you kind of think as a reader you know sitting here in the comfort of my house i'm like oh, I, I talked to paul for a while he seems like a cool guy but then much later in the book you know 150 pages later you start to say he's having this slow emotional breakdown mm. so i started to think like you know how is paul representative of some of the people you met out on the flats so you meet people with all kinds of challenges and uh, Paul's challenge w is, um, you know, uh, nervousness around people. Uh, he, he told me he has social anxiety disorder. He, he gets super nervous in a Walmart. Mm -hmm. um, he likes having a visitor for a meal or something, but then maybe it's, it's time to go. And uh He's got dogs for company. He has five uh, healer dogs mostly. He calls them the girls. They're all girls. Uh, he's very open about how he is and how he's doing. And in fact, when I met him, the first thing he said is, hi, I'm Paul. And yes, I'm gay. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> good to know. Thank you for that. And, um, uh, you know, he... He's very endearing that way, and he's funny. On the other hand, he is subject to uh, depression, to getting upset. Uh, he's to he's really bothered by the wind. 
if he were part of this conversation, I think he'd be nodding and saying, can't stand that freaking wind. And he posts on about it on Facebook. It's driving me crazy. And I think it was during a windy time of year when he just, you could just see he was making less sense. He was saying, this is driving me nuts. It's driving me up the wall. He shows one day that he has broken his own TV. He has tipped over his own refrigerator. He's thrown a toaster out the window. And um, I tried through La Puente to see if I could get him uh, some counseling because that's really what he wanted and what he needed. And um, another neighbor called me one day. She thought he was suicidal and the police had taken him to a clinic. And I told La Puente, this is kind of an emergency. Is there anything we can do? And there was, you know, they knew it's super hard to get free uh, mental health care in this Valley. It's a very, there's very skeletal services really of any kind, but medical is particularly, it's hard to find people, but we were able to set him up with a, a weekly session. And I think it really helped him. That's, it wasn't a cure, right? I think it, his moods continue to fluctuate. Um, but he, he's managing. And, uh, so yeah, he's, he's actually, uh, one of the people I've gotten to know best out there. Yeah. And his story is one of like, you get, you get a, as a reader, you get some of these small triumphs as the yeah. book goes on. You get some, you get some scenes that are really heartbreaking, but you also get these, and he was one of those triumphs, it seems where he's not, you know, everything is not a magic wand, but you got him what he needed. So, yeah, well, that's, it's really, it's one of the yeah. things I'm most proud of, uh, having done in all the months I volunteered for La Puente was, was helping Paul. So, uh, yeah, you know, as a journalist, you're there to learn, but I think you can do that without compromising your mission of uh, coming to understand and cast light on a way of life. I think it, yeah. it's possible to to wear more than one hat at a time if you're transparent about who you are and what you're doing. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So let's talk about it. Let's shift gears a little. Talk about the theme of, of freedom, because that's certainly a word people associate with with Colorado, right? So there's yeah. this there's this romantic notion about freedom, or maybe it's not romantic at all that, that comes up in the book. So here's a quote by you about a hundred pages in the book. You say that you quote love the open country. The emptiness was freedom, but too much of it could be a bad thing. So how so? Yeah, so there's a couple of aspects in which it can be bad. Uh, I think what I was talking about right there was uh, my own feelings of loneliness and solitude. Uh, solitude is something I treasure. I, you know, I live in New York City. Yeah, we all want it, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? We all want. When you come home and no one's home, and you you get the house to yourself for two hours, I could read, I could right? think, I could do whatever I want. Like we it's, look for it. It's heaven. It's heaven. <laughs> Um, but out there on the prairie, it might be heaven for a day or two, but by day three, I need to connect. I need to relate to people. I may, maybe I need to drive into town. Maybe I need to talk to somebody on the phone. Maybe I need to go to their house. That might be the best thing. And in a way, that was good because it kept me engaged with people, right? Like that right. was what I was supposed to be doing there is talking to people, meeting them. But I have a, a fear, I guess, of, of yeah, being 
isolated and alone for too long. And so that's one aspect of all that. Um, did all you that know, space. Quick question. Did you know that about yourself before you went out there? Or did you think like, oh, I could handle this? I've been in rougher places. And then you, after a while, you're, you became kind of like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> So that Jack Nicholson scene, it actually had a lot of meaning earlier in my career as a writer when I was trying to write my very first book, uh, which is called Rolling Nowhere. It's about riding freight trains with railroad tramps. And I was done with the research and I moved up to a cabin owned by my family in Winter Park, Colorado with my dog. And I thought, this is how writers get their books yeah. done, right? You, you move up hotel. to the hotel. That's great. Right. I'll be the caretaker. Exactly. <laughs> and it was a terrible mistake because for the same reasons, I, I got lonely and um, the dog was not good enough company. And uh, so I knew this about myself, but that's, you know, that was a while ago. And um and so I kind of had to relearn it and recalculate my own uh, how to how to keep myself on a on a good path and and so yeah freedom uh, the freedom of all that space is a a wonderful thing but uh, there are downsides. Okay, so yeah, so it's almost like. Um... Me and Bobby McGee, you know, free, you know, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose, which is yeah. actually a different kind of freedom, right? But you also say later in the book that um, some people were – this is a, another quote by you. They're seeking more freedom from the bad deeds of the past or even the freedom to do more bad. So absolutely. And this is one of the more harsh things I learned out there is that people who I initially liked and assumed were good people – uh, revealed themselves to have done some terrible things. And uh, one was a neighbor who, in front of my eyes, paid $25 for a healer puppy, you know, an Australian cattle dog. They're very popular out there. And my nearest neighbor, Troy, had some for sale. This guy bought one one day. And I, he's a, a charming somewhat sophisticated worldly guy who it turned out uh, had a long history of running puppy mills in remote parts of the West, California, Oregon. Uh, gosh, I think, he, I think he had legal issues in three or four states at least um, where he had done bad things to animals. And um, I felt naive. I felt I had, I felt I was being too, too uh, rosy-eyed, you know, uh, yeah. optimistic about human nature, and then there was a a guy he was friends with who was arrested one day by the sheriff's office, which posted on their Facebook page a mugshot of this eighty-year-old man who had fixed up an, a broken-down cabin. I thought he was so virtuous and. You know, just a person to admire. It turns out he was an unregistered sex offender. He had failed to sign up and tell the sheriff he was there. He was at the time just uh, he'd established himself as a a preacher at a nearby church, and obviously this is a problem, right? right, um, right. But you do meet people out there with um, with open warrants with felonies that they yeah. are. So they are trying to keep out of, uh, they want to stay away from authority. They don't want brushes with people in power. And um, 
that's part of life out there. Yeah, it's a different kind of freedom than the than the, than the, uh, the naive person who wants to go and, and, and look at the beautiful sky every day. Exactly. Uh, so let's let's shift gears again. Drugs. So yeah. drugs are drugs are all over this book. We we have all these people growing weed, which is legal there, but you have a lot of people addicted to opioids. And you quote the sheriff of Alamosa saying that ninety percent of all the prisoners at the Alamosa jail had an opiate addiction. And there are many stories in the book of these broken families. Like, you know, like I said, some parts of the book are, are funny and, the, and you try to navigate your way through it are, are, are amusing, but some parts of it are grim, right? You have these families trying to, to navigate their lives um, through the desperation of, of being involved with meth and opiates. So can you talk about the connection between, I should get a two-part question, the connection between drugs and life in the Valley and did any of your experience out there affect your opinions or complicate them about the so-called, you know, war on drugs? Because you don't, you don't, you don't editorialize, which I think is great about the book. You kind of say, here's what I saw. Right. I want readers to be able to make up their own minds, but that said, there are some facts that readers need to know. And uh, I tell how on the same month that I met the Grubers out on the prairie, um, uh, 60 Minutes did a story on how this big drug distributor, McKesson, uh, I, I, I found this uh, right before we, we started talking. It said McKesson was shipping the same quantities of opioid pills to small town pharmacies in Colorado's San Luis Valley as it would typically ship to large drugstores next to big city medical centers. <clears throat> it was enough pills to give every man, woman, and child a monthly dose of 30 to 60 tablets. So um, I am not a sort of drug prohibitionist. I think, uh, the, you know, I think marijuana should be legalized. I, I think people who get thrown in prison for decades because of involvement in the drug trade, I think that's a mistake. But Man, I really think the government needs to exercise oversight to keep companies from making money um, on the sale of these horrific drugs like pain pills, right? Like uh, the Sackler family. I mean, it took years for us to understand what was going on with the opioid epidemic. But no, that's there should there's a rightful war on that kind of drug and um you know uh, uh, more broadly it opened my eyes well yes of course all the ways that heroin opioids fentanyl most recently though it's only just getting to the valley now but those are terribly destructive drugs but you know then you've got alcohol um there's so many people who drink too much in the world generally, but I think out on the prairie, that can be a response to loneliness is, is drinking. Um, and I've become more aware of that than ever before. And, uh, simultaneously less interested in drinking myself as I, as I guess, as I get tired of talking to people who've had too much, uh, over the months, you just think, Oh gosh, again, uh, here, here we are. Um, and then also I was surprised out there just by the people with real conservative politics who were big potheads. I didn't expect to find, you know, guys carrying their guns on their hips and holsters and with their MAGA hats on just 
smoking a lot of weed. It, it, I was naive that way. Uh, I've got one neighbor who's trying to cure his his cancer through THC enemas, and he's a he's as conservative a person as you'll meet. Uh, it, it it would be hard to have imagined I would find all these things. Yeah. It was yeah. funny. Every time you try to pin somebody down, they would surprise you in yeah. these interesting ways. So let's go back in time a little. You, you, uh, in the middle of the book, you go into the history of how the flats were subdivided in the 70s yeah. and who actually came up with the idea of selling these five-acre parcels, right? So you quote this fellow named uh, Chet Choman who made some money selling these. And he said, quote, there was a mystique about owning a piece of Colorado that kind of lends itself to people from outside the area. And I, so I love this. And he also says, a five-acre parcel was worth a lot more in Chicago than it was in the Valley. So I'm reading that, and all I can think of, all I can think of, is Glengarry Glen Ross, the play by David Mamet, right. selling this real rancho estate. So we're just going to sell it out there. So I think that's that's an overall theme of the book, right? Can you talk about this idea that the land is often worth more in people's imaginations than in the real world? Yeah. So uh, these subdivisions in the '70s, they they sold five-acre lots by mail. Um, through newspaper ads, TV yeah. guys. You show the ad in the book. There's a replicate. It's so funny to see the actual ad. Right? Buy your Colorado ranch. <laughs> and they call this thing a ranch, this five acres of prairie that has, you know, there's, I don't know how you could be a rancher there unless you had a creek running through it or something. There's no utilities. There's no water. There's no electricity. And, um, uh, but people, you know, owning land is a big deal. It taps into something deep in our psyches. And the terms that these subdividers came up with at the time were like the only way you could buy land without a down payment in the United States. Uh, and there was, uh, well, 30 or $50 down payment and then 30 or $50 a month. Um, uh, even a person of very modest means could say they own land in Colorado. And yeah, I'm going out there this summer. And, and it sounds so scammy. And in one way it is because <laughs> you can't set, you won't be able to sell this for what you paid. Right. right? Which I guess that's the definition right. of a scam. It's, it's a bad investment in terms of making money, but can you have an investment that's good in terms of how it makes you feel? And I, I think if you can, then maybe you understand why Chet Choman, who you quoted, does not feel guilt about selling these lots. Um, you know, the Federal Trade Commission did a big investigation of these real estate companies that sold these lots and and insisted they pay a fine and refund money to all these people who then did not want their money back. Yeah, they, they didn't want it back. Yeah. They were happy <laughs> with what they got. And so that was a bit of an eye-opener to me too, that um, just like you say, there's sometimes it's you'll pay for the mystique, and maybe you're not getting ripped off. Yeah, they sell. They, I, I just heard last week, and I made me think of your book. You know, you can buy a you know an acre of land in Scotland, so you're officially you know a lord. Of, you know, <laughs> you, you can say you can have, get your certificate or something in America and hang it in your office wall or something. Don't do it. Um, yeah. Don't don't yeah, buy that. I, I won't do it. I won't do it. <laughs> so I want to run. This is this is my longest question for you, but I want to run this by you because it was my favorite moment in the book, and I think a moment that really epitomizes what you do as a writer so well. So here's what it is. I want to get your reaction to this. Yeah. So you tell a story about a guy who comes to La Puente's headquarters in Alamosa 
and he wants some snacks. And he's given the person that works there a really hard time. Like he says, give me some snacks. She says, okay, I just want to enroll you in the system here. And he keeps giving sarcastic answers. You know, he says, my name is Benjamin Franklin. I'm 200 years old. He's being really nasty. A scene is happening. He gets his snacks and he leaves, right? And you say, like, you're fascinated by the calm demeanor of the woman who's taking care of them, right? And you say, well, that's how La Puente works. And this is their, their, their motto is, you can't really know their pain, so don't judge. So I get to that part in the book because I'm getting annoyed too by the guy, right? Mm, and yeah. then you, you can't know their – and I'm – okay, right. That's a good check on you, Dan. You can't know his pain, so stop judging. Fair enough. And then in the very next sentence, you say, but what about judging? <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, wait a second now. And then I'm like, where is Ted Conover going with this? And then you tell the story of somebody out on the flats – who's not in the best shape physically or materially in terms of living shape, who took his $1,400 COVID stimulus check to buy a go-kart. So he spent that on a go-kart, right? He needs help getting the go-kart in the truck and you kind of get a little, maybe a little bit on your moral high horse. And you say, no, I disapprove this of this. This is you. I can't believe this is what you're going to spend it on. You disapprove that. But then you kind of say yes. So the reader is going back and forth, kind of like a metronome, right? So I, I just thought that was the best moment in the whole book. Um, I don't know if you thought it was that good when you wrote it, but can you talk about that moment, the go-kart moment, and this idea of judgment and, and, and how the reader is meant to approach these people? Because I thought it was great. So I was taught out there, not just by my neighbors, but by La Puente. And La Puente's mission is to, uh, yeah, help people who've – who've had some bad luck. And it's like an article of faith for La Puente that uh, you should not judge them for being homeless, for being addicted, for even for being abusive. I mean, La Puente really tries to remind everyone who works for it that, you know, you have certain obligations to protect vulnerable people, uh, you know, or if you see a crime being committed, you need to respond to that. But if you're just, if you're trying to figure out how to talk to somebody, you should not do that from a place of judgment because you don't know what what they went through up till now. And that all sounds great until you see your colleague in the food bank being uh, disrespected in this sarcastic way by this guy she was keeping her calm, but I was losing mine. I was like, I'm ready to go <laughs> shout at this guy. And she tells me later, you know, I learned when I was a high school teacher, you, they're just trying to get a reaction and they're speaking out of their own pain. And clearly he's got mental problems and I don't take it personally. And I just thought, whoa, I don't know how yeah, you do that because it doesn't feel good to suspend judgment sometimes, right? Sometimes you right. just, you figure it's who you are as a human being. You have to respond and forcefully to somebody who's misbehaving so badly. But then, yeah, it, it completely, it was in the same month that I had to make the decision about driving this guy into town to buy a go-kart. A go-kart. <laughs> and he lives, he lives in a trailer the size of mine with four kids, his wife, they have very little and, you know, I'm sure including enough warm clothes and nutritious food and he wants to buy a go-kart. And so reflexively, I'm like, I'm not going to help him do that. But then I thought about it overnight and I thought, 
well, that's what he wants. And maybe he knows what he needs. You know, it's a right. La Puente thing. So I went back to tell him I would drive him into town and discovered he'd already gotten a ride. So I didn't have to. But then I spun by the next day and <laughs> the whole family is out on the go-kart and they also bought a mini bike. It was enough money to buy both. And um, they are having so much fun. And the little girl who's eight years old runs up to me and said, mom can't come right now because she's on the go-kart. And uh, it's complicated, isn't it? It's really complicated. And I wanted to be open that I don't always have the answer. And, uh, and judging or not judging is, I think, one of the hardest things we do as human beings. Yeah. And that's that's what I, th- I think, even long apart from Colorado, I think that's one of the great things about your book, because it really is a book about judgment in which the reader is like exhibit A. And the reader is constantly, like, like I, I constantly felt myself, again, being like sucker punched in the best ways, where as soon as I had my mind up made up about somebody, you know, so you find out something else, like you said before about finding out the guy was a sex offender or something else. And, and that's like true of the whole the whole flats, right? Thing I appreciate that you uh, you you saw that. Thank you. Sure. So let's 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 move to the the beginning and the end. So the epigraph of the book. You have an epigraph. The passage is by uh, Kent Harroff, the Colorado novelist. And here's what he says of the prairie. He says, "Quote: It's dry, but it's not an empty place. Never mind what people think. It may not be pretty, but it's beautiful if you know how to look at it." So what did you learn? Like how how do you look at it? <laughs> <laughs> so. I guess there's two big things I'm encountering in my book. Part is the natural surrounds, which it's not the alpine Colorado beauty that you associate with John Denver, right? But it it's a different beauty and it's it's spectacular, but you have to look past the mountains maybe to yeah. to appreciate it. And then the other subject of my book is all these people and likewise, if you are in your expensive car driving by the prairie, you know, at a high rate of speed, which you can do there, and you see somebody in a broke down old van, you know, looking like they just came out of Oklahoma in the Dust Bowl, you might think that's not a beautiful sight. But if you got to know them, you might uh, see beauty in them as human beings, um, as I've got to say, as I did time and again. So, uh, that is part of what the challenge to me as a writer and what I like to think the challenge is to a reader as well as is, is to think about what's, what's beautiful here. Yeah. That, and that's, and that's the epigraph is how do you see it? Because it's complicated, right? So if somebody said to yeah. me right now, well, what are the people like in this book? I'd say, well, you got to read it. Like, you, you, <laughs> like my adjectives aren't going to believe me. You just got to, you just got to read the thing. So let's go to the, the end of the book, right? The book's yeah. last sentences. Here's what you say at the end quote. And so I came, saw and left, came, saw and left over and over again. I built a fence because it felt right. And because I planned to stay a while longer. <laughs> So you just do you still have the trailer in the land? I do. Uh, and I can reveal to you today that's it on the cover of the book. Uh, uh, taken oh, by a, really? Yeah, <laughs> taken by a drone that owned owned by a friend of mine who came by. I wasn't even there. He said, "Can I go see your place?" And he said, "Yeah." And he took that picture, and uh, 
so it's funny, you know, my other projects, especially New Jack, where I was a corrections officer, I was so relieved when that job was over. Right. And when I finally finished writing the book, I just felt a huge weight was off my shoulders. Um, I am, I'm always, I guess, happy to finish a book, but in this case, I'm not happy to finish the research because I still like it out there. It's kind of, it's grown on me and I, I'm going to keep going. I, I, I've been four times since I finished writing the book and I hope I will go that many times next year. I, um, uh, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to become friends with my subjects, but I'm something, yeah. I'm something friendly out there. And I, uh, I'm, I'm a neighbor, maybe put it that way. And I, um, I like going there. So, yeah. and it's every time there's something interesting that I would never have imagined, uh, in my other life. So it's, it's, it's been uh, a project I am glad to have uh, jumped into, and I, I have one foot still there. Have any of the people you've written about read the book? Yeah, I'd say most probably have, because I sent my first advanced copies to them. I figured I owed that to them. If the world's going to be able to read about them, they should be able to first. And I'd already done all this fact-checking, so they knew what I was writing about. And, and in most cases, they knew exactly what I had said. Um, uh, and, you know, I think a couple have basically said, well, I wouldn't have put it quite the way you did, but the way you put it is true. And uh, <laughs> I take that as uh, as a good sign, right? They're not right, going to disavow yeah. me or disavow the book, but they might put it their own way as as everybody has the right to do. Right. Are there any? Is there anything on the horizon for you now? Or are you taking a breather? Or do you know what your next immersion project is going to be? Or you don't want to talk about it? Or <laughs> oh, I just I don't know that I've ever known what the next one is going to be until the last one receded a little bit and left some space in my brain for new things. Uh, I'm still quite full of this this book and happily. So uh, we should talk again in a year or so. Okay, great. Well, it has been it has been great talking to you today, Ted. It, this conversation is everything I'd hoped for. I cannot recommend your book highly enough to anybody who's listening to this right now. And you're like, that kind of sounds kind of interesting. I'm telling you, get the book. It's it's phenomenal. James McBride, the, the novelist, the cover blurb says, "I hope every American reads this book," and uh, that's not actually hyperbole. I mean, I think I think yeah. it's a, it's a book about America and about people in it and how to think about them. I'm really glad the book found you, Dan, and I I. Uh... Uh, truly, I'm, I, I appreciate uh, you as a reader. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much, Ted.